Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Are you talking about the Philip experiment? I'm talking about Philip. It's the first American edition. I, uh, I don't know if there's a difference between this and the first Canadian edition. So you have to ask yourself, what's happening there? What's going on here? I was on a bike ride. This wasn't a ghost hunt, Ed. Oh, what what are we watching now? My wife brought me some tea from Starbucks. Isn't that the same as the placebo effect in a lot of ways? Absolutely staged. Gonna meet a ghost in a steakhouse. You know, it's frustrating because... If you perform, you should have a nice big pint of beer. Would you like that? Astonishing Legends would like to thank Shady Rays, HelloFresh, Peloton, our contributors at patreon.com and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In our last episode, we brought you the background on the 1972 Philip experiment, an attempt by a parapsychological research society in Toronto to conjure up and communicate with a fictional ghost of their own making. At first, the experiment produced zero results. For over a year, the group would get together weekly and attempt to manifest an actual apparition of their made-up character, Philip. After all this time, you would expect most folks to give up, but instead, they changed tactics, reverting to the methodology used during the heyday of seances conducted in the 19th century. And that worked. They never saw an apparition, but the card table they routinely gathered around began moving on its own. A lot. Sliding around the room, tilting up on two and sometimes even one leg while all of the volunteers' hands rested clearly on top of the table. There was even levitation reported. Much of this has been captured on film. They seemed to be able to reproduce this effect readily once they figured out the right circumstances. Then the interaction graduated from what is colloquially known as table tilting to knocking or rapping sounds. The ghost, if you can call it that, would respond to questions by knocking on the table. Again, while the volunteers' hands were all clearly visible. If it's not a hoax, which we'll discuss, then what is this phenomenon? And how does it redefine what a ghost is in the first place? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It is tempting to speak of psychokinesis effects as being produced by a force, but this may be misleading. The production of a PK effect by a living subject at a distant point bears little resemblance to the radiation of any actual physical force field from its source. Dr. A.R.G. Owen, New Horizons Journal, Volume 1, Number 5, 1975. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on Conjuring Philip. And we're back. That we are. This has been a fun topic to dive into, mm-hmm. and we're going to get right back into it, but a couple of very quick notes first. Uh, the biggest one is that we're taking the first week of April off from both the main show and the junk drawer, but we'll be back with a new show the weekend of April 15th. You got to get your taxes done anyway, right? Yeah, just tell the IRS a poltergeist ate them. 
On another quick note, if you folks have been enjoying this topic, Rich Hannum joined us on our most recent junk drawer to talk about the Philip experiment. And we also shared and reacted to the footage that's out there of the table actually moving around. Yeah, it was a great conversation. We had a blast getting into it and how it all might work. So if you want to see our made-for-radio faces on the small screen, head hmm. over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. All patrons from the $5 and up level get access to the junk drawer as well as commercial-free versions of the show and other bonus content. Okay, so where were we? Right, so as we said in part one, we talked in our last episode about what the Philip experiment was, which right. I'm thinking, and this is one of those ones that's always so much fun for us. It's like, we love to touch on the big stuff because the big things that everybody's talked about, right. you, you do want to tackle those things, but it's always fun to bring one along that you've never heard of. And I'm guessing there's a good portion of our audience that hadn't heard this story because I yeah. feel like I hadn't really heard it. If it hadn't been for Tess, it wouldn't even be in my wheelhouse at all from a blog entry, I believe. So <laughs> yeah, she's covered uh, everything, everything out of the sun. She's covered everything. She knows about everything. Blog. But uh, we've had a few letters over the years about this particular experiment when we've covered something in this realm, let's say, anything right. with uh, spiritism, spiritualism, uh, seances. What a fun time to be alive back then. Uh, when all this stuff was going on, these people are doing seances and just having parties and like, let's go over right. here and talk to the dead. I mean, like <laughs> putting well, on your bow tie and your top hat and I, going over I, and trying to, you know, get in touch with Houdini. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's kind of cool. It's like all of history when people say like, right now there's the, it's the worst period of in, in human history. Well, you have to remember it's always been like that in my view and probably many historians, I would assume your book ending it with the civil war, which is pretty bad. And then yeah, coming true. up, you got World War One, And then after yeah. that, you got the stock market crash and the depression. So yeah, there was yeah, a term yeah. called the gay 90s, which 1890s, where it's like, okay, can we breathe for a little bit right now? Yeah. We're trying to build yeah. things back. And yeah, I know things aren't great, but we're trying to just take a breather here. And yeah. a lot of this is what happens in this period. Now, I will say pre-Civil War, in the 1850s, that's when leading figures in science like Michael Faraday. And on the brain power side, we have figures like Dr. Carmichael talking about hypnosis. And so these things were being studied. And we talk a lot about that, actually, in our Patreon episode with Rich about, uh, he brings up the point, it's like, at what point was this allowed to be studied? And was this being studied by scientists of the day and the era correctly? Was it allowed to be studied? Because what happens now? And here's what I would say about this topic in general. Everybody asks for phenomena to be repeatable under any circumstances, or at least a laboratory circumstance where it's controllable, where, as said this in part one, you don't have to go to a haunted house or an abandoned asylum or this and that. It's right there under fairly bright lights. It's been captured on camera. Now, here's the thing. I think if you drill down, and this is what we're talking about in our junk drawers, that you can see this on film and you can hear it. It's recorded by a television studio crew with a boom mic and they put the mic right down to the uh, the upturned table and yeah. you can hear something. Now, you still have to be there. I was thinking about this analogy earlier. I was driving up the 101 Pacific Coast Highway, beautiful, gorgeous, right? And uh, the sun was coming down. There's a fog bank off the coast and it was just the, one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen. And I, I pulled over to a, a wide spot, a scenic uh, viewpoint spot 
and I took some photos and I had a, a pretty decent 35 millimeter camera, probably not the best film for that. Cause you'd want probably something like Kodachrome 25, but it, it was oh, photography nerd. <laughs> I had a, uh, I think I had a fast film like 400. So it's not the most quality. Okay. The point being is I thought, goodness, what great shots. These are going to be spectacular, right? Back in the pre-digital days, get the film home. I look at it. It's like, meh. It wasn't, yeah. you had to be there. That's the point. It's like something extraordinary. Yeah. I captured on film and I showed it to people who were like, oh yeah, that's, that's nice. Yeah. Well, that's, that's like taking okay. a picture of the Grand Canyon. You yeah, don't, you, it right. just doesn't translate. Yeah. It's hard to do. So in this case, you can see this and it's like, well, I guess I hear some knocking or whatever. And it seems to be tipping. But to your point, are they pushing down on the table? Is there some kind of parlor trick happening that these people aren't catching or the observers aren't catching? Yeah, that's what we talked about in the junk drawer. Like it, when you watch it, I was all set to debunk the table tilting because just in general, it has a reputation as being a con kind of parlor trick sure, thing, tilting sure. tables. So it's just like a planchette. Yeah, and the, the rising board, trumpet. You know, or you're and... pushing it. No, you're pushing it. <laughs> right. So when you take a group of people and put them around a very light table, like a card table, it would take very little individual effort because right. the collective effort would add up. So it wouldn't take a lot to shake the table and not look like you're shaking it. Right. However, the tilting gets more involved. The tilting on two legs, one leg, and I experimented with that with a card right. table in the junk drawer show. And it was difficult. You know, I wasn't super finessed at it, but it was also the first time I was doing it and I was alone. Right. Now, in a, if you had a group of people, I could see where you could do a lot of that and it would be theatrics. Mm -hmm. However, there were definite parts of the filmed footage, and there's not a ton of it. There's probably 20 minutes total between two different specials. Which I think is out there. And I made this point when we we're talking to Rich. I think if you were a serious parapsychologist, or a serious uh, researcher wanting to study, those could be made accessible to you, but not so much to the general public of just them putting it on YouTube, which right, is what we right. found, which is enough to see the demonstration. That was enough to yeah. explain what was going on so you get an idea. It would be fun to track down more of the footage from the actual experiment. Uh, that group is no longer around, but there's still there's right. another one around that has all their materials, and if we were to reach out to them, we might be able to get access to that. But... What I was thinking was, well, I, you know, look at this. I can tilt this table right behind me with my hand and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. But there were moments in the footage, and this is the other thing about the two presentations that are available right now. One's like seven minutes, the other one's 11 or something. One is clearly, you know, we all, it's funny, all three of us all worked in, you know, Rich is still working in production mm -hmm. and post-production. Forrest and I used to work in these fields. We were like, okay, that's a reenactment. There's some stuff that was very clearly yeah. a reenactment, but there was other footage that felt very real and live. Right. And there was some that clearly was live because it was filmed and a, a studio audience was there and, and it was staged like, okay, we're doing this now. All the cameras are on. Here's the microphone. And that was the part. There was some of the tilting. I was like, that does not look like anybody is making that happen. Yeah. But... Again, you need more cameras, a camera from the ceiling. Like if I were to call that group in again today, I would have GoPros everywhere, well, like under the table. <laughs> they I didn't would have like all, that, all that stuff. Right. Yeah, no, no they, they didn't have, have them. That's what I'm saying. Right, right, and right. And cameras were expensive and film was expensive. But the thing that was even more convinced, even though there was a couple of table tilting moments where I was just right. like, I can't see this being faked, this moment here. Right. However... When they were doing the knocking sounds mm -hmm. and the rapping sounds, trying to get Philip to actually knock, for that experiment, they had a much heavier wooden table right. that they had transitioned to in the experiment. If you read the book, 
because the card tables started coming apart because they were getting so destroyed. The legs were coming off. Yes, you hit on a couple of interesting points that uh, I noticed from the book and that uh, we both highlighted. And here's the thing, is that you're going to have to believe them. Or, like I said, do your due diligence of research and find what was recorded and dig up uh, that footage that they took and make your own decision. Or you can, let's say, just uh, for convenience sake, let's believe everything in the book. <laughs> and in that, yeah. as, as you yeah. said earlier on, yes, they believe in this. They want you to believe in this. But if you take them at their word, then what they're reporting is that it worked for all kinds of tables. I didn't want us to, right. you know, I, I guess cement that in people's minds like, well, it only works for like card tables and I can turn one of those over and have during Thanksgiving at the, at the kids table <laughs> with the, uh, the bowl of black olives and all that. The idea here is uh, they tried different tables and even an acrylic table, one of those 70s mod acrylic right. clear tables. It worked with that. It worked with dollies, paper dollies underneath their hands. Doilies, doilies. Do, sorry, doilies. You said dollies. Yeah. Did I? Doily. Oh, do, yeah. Doily. Yes, doilies. Doily. Yeah, what your grandmother had. Uh, circular. The, yes. Yeah. These were paper basically just to see if there was any kind yeah, of medium. And When you put the paper between the hand and the table, you eliminate friction, any hope of friction. It's friction or stickiness. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, maybe you've got some stick. Right, because you're not stick getting traction right. if you're trying to manipulate it, you're not going to get it because you're, you're going to, your hand's going to be on the paper. Not only, I would say, are they trying to, in a way, prove this to the general world that there is something going on here, but also they're experimenting with themselves. What different right. conditions, what, what works, works, what doesn't, what doesn't work. because they're trying everything that they can. And what was interesting to, to the second point here is that when they had the very heavy table, it too would move violently, they would describe. That's right. Like I said, the legs, as they, they tried to do this after the session, it's like, okay, let's see if we can duplicate this. And again, you're taking them at their word that they could scoot the table, especially this heavy table across what they called broad loop, which is yeah. carpet. And yeah. uh, it took a lot of effort. And so one side interesting note is that if this was a real phenomenon happening, that the table perhaps was also being levitated a little bit as it scooted. Because like right. I said, they're, now they're using their full force. Like, well, it's kind of hard to push across the rug here, this broad weave or broad loop. And also it was so violent, it was it was starting to bang up the walls. And in one case, yeah. in one experiment, they were using the very heavy table. They started to hear a knock on the wall. And that's a, one interesting thing is the phenomenon itself or whatever was generating that energy, let's say to make the knocking noise, also transferred to a wall. And they said, well, it, like a, it's like, a, there's no one here in this house. On the other side of this room is a dark room. But they also took people and went in there. Right on the other side of the wall who stood and yeah. made sure no one was knocking. Right. They stood and observed that there was no one there and that the sound seemed to be generating from inside the wall. Okay, so here's my second interesting point, which I think you did bring up a little bit in part one, but it right. didn't really start to gel in my head. As a lot of this uh, story is, is that you have to think on it, uh, the ramifications and the, the implications that are happening here. What they describe is that as these knocking sounds and scratching sounds. And often like when the question was uh, a little foggy or whatever was answering, and perhaps it was them, couldn't understand, it would be a scratching sound, not a firm knock. Or sometimes right. it'd be a scratching sound to, if they stopped talking about Philip for a while, it'd be like, hello, I'm yeah. here. And they would try and get yeah. their attention, whatever it was. Whatever this energy was, they said, as you said, the, the legs started creaking because to them, there was also a palpable vibration 
happening with the table and near it that they said they they heard this creaking it's like the energy from inside the table itself from inside the wood or the materials right. was tearing it apart or was causing it to come apart and as you said in part one i remember this some tables had to be replaced because they started That's falling right. apart yeah and the other thing that was happening was that sometimes they would feel the sound before they could hear it yeah they would feel a thump in the table and they, because they were trying to record it, they would have to say, louder, Philip, louder, right. do it louder, you know? And so that was an interesting idea to me, too, is that they're feeling the sound. Because this goes back to, if you look at the Fox sisters, who were the original, right. like, origins of a lot of this kind of theatrical stuff, who later wound up admitting to perpetrating some hoaxes. Yeah, I remember they were dropping yeah. apples, and the, that was the thumps, and then it was And funny. cracking knuckles, cracking their, like toe knuckles or whatever and saying it was knocking right and so you look at this and you say well these folks are saying no we feel it in the table and you feel this knocking but in coming back around to the video footage or the film footage that we reviewed in the junk tour episode on patreon the that table what i was saying a minute ago was the wooden table or one of the wooden tables it was upside down on the floor with the four legs shooting straight up in the air and they were leaning over with their hands on it as it was on the floor in the studio. And the boom mic comes right down to it. And they ask questions and they get the knocks. So there's no way with it upside down like that for anyone to fake the knocking on the table. Now, if it was somewhere else in the room, you would think the people would notice there was a live audience sitting there right. and a host, a British television host. Mm-hmm. So it's like they were all right there. I don't understand how that could have been faked. I was I was amazed yes. by that. but. Like you said, the sounds are kind of soft. Right. And again, you look at it and you're just like, I'd have to be there. It's probably like a lot of people with us with, well, we saw this and we saw that. Well, it's like, well, if I'm not there, I don't know. It doesn't really matter any of this if this is an impossibility to you. Because right. we'll hear about all kinds of stuff. Uh, <laughs> like I'm thinking about the football at that uh, that uh, famous haunted house where people have oh, seen the video clip it. and they're like, well, they they rigged the football with an actuator. It's like, look, her foot moves and then the and then the football moves, right? The person next right. to it and the football moves or the blinds, you know, uh, suddenly go down. Well, they had a tiny motor and uh, actuator motors and it, it shut the blinds yeah. all at once. Ridiculous. And that's how they did that. But here's the thing. Okay, we know Dr. Sean, the professor there. Yeah. We've gotten to know in him. In that footage. Right, in the yeah. footage. There's a specific footage that Forrest is referring to, which is on our YouTube page. And it's connected to the house that, if we say it, everyone that drinks takes a <laughs> well, drink, apparently. So. But here, yes, and so uh, it, it could be early in the day, so we're not going to, uh, we're going to leave the drinking up to you personally, and please drink yes, responsibly. Yes. We've been to that house, we've seen that football, and yes, that college group there, uh, somebody could have switched the football out and it had a thousand dollar motor in it that was uh, getting it to move a centimeter uh, yeah. and timed, you know, or it, it had a, a fish line tied to her shoe and she moved it a centimeter on cue or whatever. It's like, there's well, an orb in that shot too. And I don't even believe in orbs. Well, but there's uh, one in that uh, shot. Oh, it whips right around that's right true. before the football moves. We're, we're digressing here. But, I'm getting uh, to a real point here in okay, that uh, okay. it doesn't matter what footage you show people because it's like there's always a, a mechanical reason for that, even though that we've been there, we know the people. And as the book says early on, a lot of this, you're going to have to go on the integrity of the people themselves, right? That's early yeah. on in the book. It's like, look, I know this sounds pretty wild, but the people doing the table turning or the sitting a lot of it is an understanding and belief in their integrity and, in turn, the veracity of the experiments. 
And so right. a lot of it, there's a, there's a social aspect to it. But I was going to say with the other stuff, it, like, yeah, it doesn't matter, but it, it seems pretty unlikely that you would go to those lengths for very little effect. You know what I'm saying? It's right. like, it doesn't, right. it would seem to be very expensive or uh, somebody would have pointed that out and uh, you don't get much bang for your buck if that's the case. So here with these tables, yeah, you could say, well, somebody got, uh, you know, they, they drilled out the center of the table, the wooden table, and they put in one of those things that tells you that you got a bonus round and a pinball machine. Oh, right. Yeah. That was really loud though. Clunk. Yeah. It makes that, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you hit the bonus. A uh, servo plunger deal. The bonus match. And and yeah, you certainly could. But here they're using different types of tables under different circumstances for different audiences. And their point was uh, not to pull one over, really. I think that they, again, after a year, they were surprised that they got any effect. And then they wanted to see how far they could push it. Because really, it wasn't so much the knocks and the table moving, certainly those were nice surprises. What they were really after, and they stated in the book, is that they wanted to see if they could create a group hallucination. Right. Because early on, as ARG Owen was saying, is that what is a ghost that everybody sees in this one location and it always looks the same? You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, the gray lady is at the top of the stairs. And then people go there. It's like, oh, I saw her too. Or the the white-dressed lady at the Queen Mary. Are we all having the same hallucination? What's triggering that? If there's no ghosts at all, is it something within us that you go there expecting it and our own minds generate that image and you end up seeing it because we're anticipating seeing it? We get excited. That lays the groundwork for the same thing as table tipping. You're expecting for this thing to happen and then it does and that reinforces it. And then you can do this trick over and over again in front of anybody. Right. So ultimately, you have to ask yourself when you're looking at this and you're thinking about the actual experiment and the conditions of it, are you in that camp? Are you that person that's right. just like, well, you know what, guys, I'm I'm pretty skeptical about stuff, but I like to listen to your show mm-hmm. and entertain these ideas. But I think this is all just a bunch of parlor tricks. And the thing is, from the outside and looking at it, even from the distance that we're looking at it, I can't firmly point you to a reason that that's not what's happening. And we've right. all been tricked. I watched some guy... On a TikTok yesterday, mm-hmm. my son sent me a magician. He was like, the seven different types or 10 different types of magic. Yeah. And it's like teleportation, transportation, dissolving, right. or whatever. And he's doing all these tricks. And I was like, this is the most amazing sleight of hand I've right. ever seen. And then like down in the comments, everybody's like, yeah, this guy edits video. He's famous for it. He's editing oh. <laughs> this. But he's it's yeah. real. It's right. informative. It's telling you about types of magic, but there's there's camera tricks happening. Okay, well, that's know, different and, and, then, yeah. Yeah, it is different. But with this stuff, and this isn't even getting at the philosophy of this. It's like if you can manifest something, and that's what we're going to talk yeah. about tonight as we start addressing the conclusions and the theories and the ideas behind this, what is going on here? But I would say that everyone needs to find at least the YouTube links. We have them in our show notes for uh, those two presentations. One, you will see stuff that's clearly staged, but yeah. you'll see other stuff that I swear you're going to rewind and get up real close to your computer screen or your iPhone and try to figure out if something's happening yeah. there. And uh, I'll say what Rich said on the junk door. People should maybe start trying well, this stuff. <laughs> let's let's give it a shot. See what happens. One of the parameters of this experiment is that traditionally you need a medium in a seance. Could be a male or female, somebody who is a conduit who actually then groups the energy of the sitters around the table and amplifies that energy and is a conduit for the spirits. And they say, well, let's not have somebody who is a medium. 
let's just have ordinary people who are science-minded, and yes, it's parapsychology, but have an interest in this, but who are open to this, but not shut off, right? Not cynical about right. it. Just open-minded, because that's part of why this works. And let's see if we don't need any of the, uh, let's say, the, the spiritual aspects so much of the seances of the 19th century. Let's see if we can do this under different circumstances. And again, people from different walks of life, just with a, a common interest and keep at it, where you don't need uh, maybe less mumbo-jumbo, maybe less woo-woo. And we'll see if we can actually materialize an image, a group hallucination, and capture that that has to be seen by everybody. Can't be just one person. It has to be shared. And not just that, but one of a person or a being that we invented out of whole cloth. Exactly, with uh, historical errors so that they could track that as a marker, right? So then if it's like, oh, well, this character is repeating this error, which never happened again, as we said before, uh, claiming to have been in St. Petersburg. And at the time that he is to have existed, St. Petersburg was a swamp. So that didn't make sense, but it did give raps and knocks that were not random. They were in context because they would follow up and they would say, like, is that true, Philip? And it would give another knock for yes. So it was reinforcing the knocks were the answer it would give and would stick to that. But I would say as far as a stage trick, like, look, Scott and I love magic. We love stage magic. We love uh, close-up magic, especially uh, card mechanics, all of that. And we love the amazing James Randi. And even he was fooled for as good as he is. He was fooled and conned, but in a different realm, in a matter of the heart. And there's a terrific documentary we've plugged before called An Honest Liar from 2014. And it's, it's very touching. But it's interesting, too, just to see how uh, here's somebody who has debunked so much get conned himself when it's something uh, in a realm, let's say, that's much more personal to him. And so anybody can be fooled. And when he shows you how a trick is done, what he's really showing you logically here is that it can be faked. Not that this instance was faked that we're talking about here. You know what I'm saying? It's a, that's the difference is that, yeah, you can fake any of this stuff, but that's not the point. You can fake any EVP. Yeah. You can fake, uh, especially now, and the, the better the tech gets, especially with AI, right. which is, uh, as everyone knows, exploding onto the scene, you're going to be able to, in terms of media capture or evidence of something happening, it's all going to be all too easy yeah. to fake it. And the only thing that's going to work is if you're there right. yourself. Right. Moving forward, you have to be there and you got to witness it with your own senses. And that, you can still be right. tricked with that. You know, they can still, you know, you go through the, on a ride at Disneyland and, they, and it looks like a ghost yeah. is sitting next to you in the mirror. That you see right, that with your right. own eyes, but it's still a right. trick. So one of the best scientific minds of the era, uh, 1853 or two, when this came out, Michael Faraday, which we're going to get to you a little bit, was right there measuring the effect. Okay. And he said, yes. look, you know, all these people seemed of high integrity and honest intentions, and he was checking everything. In fact, he built everything for them to use. And he's right there. And actually the idea was him to measure this phenomenon, because let's just accept that something is going on. Let's get past their trying to sell a, uh, a million tickets and make a million dollars to the circus sideshow kind of a thing, or go on tour with it. That didn't happen. It's pretty low key. So let's just say that something is happening. The, the real pertinent and relevant question is, okay, what is happening? Who's doing it? 
how is this happening? Because just to accept, as you said earlier today, when we were just shooting the breeze on the phone, if this is real, this is mind blowing. This is game changing as to what exists outside of our own minds. And are our minds that powerful? Or is there some invisible influence acting upon us that we're in concert with to make this happen? Because this seems to be happening. I mean, you just took like the last five lines of my conclusions, but fine. That's fine. Just go Sarah, ahead. Sarah, just get rid of that. I'll, yeah. I'll okay. restate right. it later. Really? <laughs> oh. The idea here is that uh, we're not going to, or maybe you have solved it. I don't know. Well, we'll wait to the uh, folks. I, Let's yeah, get to the no, conclusions. I, yes. You don't uh, know. He may have. If I have solved it, I can count on you to point it out oh, earlier dear. in the yes, show. Yes, you've uh, accused me once again of uh, spoiling things. It's been examined <laughs> thoroughly by smarter people than us since the 1850s, at least. And I mean, this yeah, is not something not new, of course. Really. Yeah, people, people have been doing this. Uh, there may be a connection to mesmerism and hypnotism, animal magnetism. And what's the principle going on here? How is this parlor trick done, is what I'm saying. Let's talk about Michael Faraday. That's actually super interesting. He's an amazing guy. We brought him up in part one. He did some of the most amazing experiments in the world. My favorite thing about Michael Faraday as a former resident of Los Angeles is that if you didn't want your car to get stolen, mm. you would take your key and put it in a Faraday bag because <laughs> you would take your car key because when they came out with remote keys, the Faraday bag was, I think it was lined with lead or I don't even know what's in there, but you put the key in right. there because what the criminals were doing was riding up and down the streets yeah. looking for cars with remote start keys. They would amplify the signal. They would bounce out to your car key that would then unlock your car. And this is what would happen when you live in Los Angeles. Right. If you do live in Los Angeles, it might be happening to you. The criminals come down the street with this device, which is, you know, straight out of some stupid movie from the 80s. They're mm. hitting buttons and all the cars are unlocking just, and the people don't even know it. And they just go in and they rifle through yeah. and take whatever they want and they close the doors and the people don't even know because what this thing is doing is it's a device that locks into the car key, amplifies the signal, and then does a touchless entry access option for the criminal. Yeah. So if you want to get around this, you put your key in a Faraday cage. <laughs> named for Michael Faraday. So you have these little bags. You can buy them on Amazon. If you don't believe me, go right now. Google Faraday bag for your car key on Amazon. This is Michael Faraday. The other option is to put your car key in the freezer. But if you do, it gets really cold. Oh. It's not great for the, you know, the battery the or whatever. But, the, but this is the point. He came up with all this stuff. He came up with the idea also of how you can protect yourself from electrocution by being in a cage that redirects the energy around you that's Michael Faraday. Yeah. He invented electrolysis, the process yeah. of using electrical energy to gold plate things or to attract chemicals to each other using electrical processes. And we wouldn't have the electric motor without him. And also to shape your eyebrows. Well, that is a Oh, that current. little device that well, we well, see on, I, on, on generally Home Shopping Network, Electrolysis. Right? But it's uh, <laughs> applying an electrical current, which is what he was doing, to either a cage or a mesh. Uh, what you're right. talking about, sir, that is currently going on right now. Again, we thought right. that was a problem that was solved in the mid-2000s, but right now, and not to cast any aspersions, but I believe people are asking Hyundai and Kia what is going on because those are some of the most stolen cars that they have not updated with a protection measure for this electronic right. theft. And then I'm also watching 
Mr. Mercedes, and that features prominently in that storyline, which is a good and pretty dark. Oh my series. gosh, I forgot about that show. I haven't seen that in a while. But you're right. It, it's a, yeah. no somebody has figured out how to unlock stuff and get things to change. And what he's talking about is Signal here. But Michael Faraday is one of my science heroes. If uh, and not just yeah. me. Get this. Albert Einstein kept a picture of Faraday on his study wall, it says, alongside pictures of Arthur Schopenhauer and James Clerk Maxwell. James Clerk Maxwell is another of my science heroes because he's the scientist who took Faraday's calculations, which he himself could not express very well with trigonometry, I believe. He had a, uh, an understanding of uh, high algebra and that's kind of stopped there and he felt really bad. And of course he was oh, made yes, fun of. yes, I read but that. But that is a physicist, I think finally he said, uh, no, no, this is solid. And he set out to prove all of his yeah. theorems and experiments. And he's considered one of the best experimentalists, Faraday, in the history of science in the world. Yeah, and that's what's really fascinating. And, and just for some context here, folks, he was born in 1791 in London. Mm -hmm. So that that's the time period that he lived in. But yes, great experimentalist. And the other thing that we discovered about him is that not so great at math. We mentioned this in part one. Apparently, he his math knowledge only went up to algebra or so. Yeah. Uh, which puts him on par with me. That makes me feel good. I, I, I got to calculus and I started to have some issues. About uh, <laughs> so. me too. Another legendary figure in science, another one of my heroes, Ernest Rutherford, first Baron Rutherford of Nelson, was a New Zealand physicist who's known as the father of nuclear physics. What he had to say about Faraday was, quote, when we consider the magnitude and extent of his discoveries and their influence on the progress of science and of industry, there is no honor too great to pay to the memory of Faraday, one of the greatest scientific discoverers of all time. Faraday made a lot of amazing discoveries in his time. One of them was that he discovered that moving a magnet near a wire could produce an electrical current. That is the basis for electric motors and generators. Yeah. So you can look at uh, Nikola Tesla and the reason that we have electric cars and EV vehicles going on today. All of that stuff is based on the work that Faraday did first. Mm -hmm. He also discovered the process of electrolysis, how to separate chemical compounds into their basic components using an electric current. Right. This opened up a whole new world of chemical research. So this guy was way ahead of his time. And somehow he wound up being an investigator of table tilting. <laughs> well, it's a force. Here, here's the thing. Uh, we, we mentioned in part one, well, that's what a real scientist does, right? One who's yes. not uh, too cynical is that you investigate, you check stuff out. What is this thing that people are talking about? What's all the rage here in the mid-19th century, the 1850s? What's going on here? Is this real? And you don't make up your mind before you do the experiment. You test it to see what's going on, and then you make an assessment. And that's what Faraday did. I think he entered into this with an open mind, as well as Dr. Carpenter, and the two articles are linked. What's funny is one mentions the other, uh, so that's an interesting connection because one is about the, the physical properties of table turning, as they called it then, but also uh, Carpenter talks about the mental aspect, the muscular physio aspect of this happening, kind of like who's moving the planchette, as Scott says. What's moving it? Is it ourselves and we just don't know it? And that was studied as well. But what I liked about uh, Faraday in the setup here was that for this phenomenon to be studied, he did it the best you could then, and I think in a lot of ways, now. Because there's only a few things that he wanted to check out. Now, we talked about this earlier. It's like, yeah, nowadays, of course, we want GoPros in every angle. We want uh, uh, mel meters, tri-field meters. We want to study every force that's happening. 
but you have to realize that he could also do that then as well. Right. And what he concluded was that he could detect no outside force of magnetism, of an electrical current, of anything other than what was coming through the person turning the table. Yeah. So he cleared that up at the outset. I just want to let you all know that I did not discover any kind of force. Now, that's not to point out any chicanery. That is to say, I didn't detect this coming from the person either. You know, like, as you see in, in the animated cartoons, the, the lightning bolts coming out of the fingertips when to animate what's happening. And that's, I think a lot of people think that there is some kind of wave or force. But what is happening here? What's getting it to move the table? One of the things that these folks researched when they were trying to figure out how table tilting worked and how all of these things worked was the idiomotor phenomenon. Yeah. The idiomotor phenomenon, according to Wikipedia, psychological phenomenon wherein a subject makes motions unconsciously. And specifically, the research for this was conducted by William Benjamin Carpenter. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to talk about between both these remarkable gentlemen of science is that what they shared in common was a desire to share knowledge with others, and especially the the more regular folks like you and I, and to make yes. that uh, that sorry, and to make that science understandable by easy explanation, which uh, was ironically not what we came across. When we tried to write, but here's what here's what we're going to say is that they had a desire not to be in their ivory towers, but let's share what we find via journals and articles, and also because they were somewhat unassuming in their personality, especially Faraday, is that he wanted to speak in more plain English exactly what was going on and what he was finding out, and the same thing with Carpenter. Let's explain this to people because people should know about this. Right, and and there's a movement that exists to this day. I know that there are books out because I've read them in the past where the whole crux of the book, you read the foreword, it's written by scientists who want dummies like us to understand it. <laughs> Which is, like, that's education, just, yeah. Here's, here's where we're at right now, yeah. And so that's a, that's a fascinating thing. But this particular, the idiomotor experiments, I, I want to read a little bit of an excerpt from mm -hmm. this, and, and specifically relating to uh, William Carpenter here. This is from the Royal Institution of Great Britain, 1852, their weekly evening meeting, Friday, March 12th. William B. Carpenter, on the influence of suggestion in modifying and directing muscular movement independently of volition. The phenomena in question are those which have been recently set down to the action of an odd force, such, for example, as the movements of the divining rod and the vibration of bodies suspended from the finger, both which have been clearly proved to depend on the state of expectant attention mm -hmm. on the part of the performer, his will being temporarily withdrawn from control over his muscles by the state of abstraction to which his mind is given up, and the anticipation of a given result being the stimulus which directly and involuntarily prompts the muscular movements that produce it. Yeah. So this is a fascinating take, right? Because what's happening here is they're saying, no, the muscles are definitely part of this. The muscles are swinging the pendulum, they're moving the table, but the person is not involved. Mm -hmm. They're checked out from that process. That is what William B. Carpenter is saying. Right. However, when they do these experiments later on, they think that that's just a jumping off point. They're not convinced that that's actually the root of what's happening. Yes. And two other honorable mentions, people I like in science, Neil deGrasse Tyson and his mentor, Carl Sagan, who are both not just scientists, but as Tyson would say, educators, which is, let's tell the people 
what's going on with these forces that affect their lives that they don't often look into, but we're going to do that, which is the role of science to measure, gauge, and explain. So that's what's happening with Faraday in this process. And so this comes from the Journal of the Franklin Institute, volume 56, 1853. And what we had was a scan of that. And under the section, Mechanics, Physics, and Chemistry, is the article written by Michael Faraday. He does a very good job at explaining it. However, Scott and I are not that bright, and it was pretty dense. <laughs> we had well, a little it, bit no, of trouble. It was, it was more than yeah. just dense. It was the language of the era. There's, It's, it's very flowery. Well, I'll just say Grammarly would uh, have a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was that. indirect. It was indirect. A little difficult to decipher. Yeah. We could get there if you gave us time, but you know what? We only got a couple weeks here. We're, I know, we're I know. Well, no, here's so, what yeah. the deal is, is that he explains exactly what he did with his experiments, which are not all that complicated, but you, you think about it, it's like, well, that's very clever, the way he yes. set this up with some basic ingredients, some basic uh, materials. I'm sure he's thrilled to know that we think what he did was smart. <laughs> well, look, he can rest on his laurels, most of the stuff. In fact, the reason you're hearing this and us is because of him right, right now in your that's little right. device that's in your pocket that you can't right. be without. It's all from him. But here, he's talking about his experiments with table turning specifically, because again, this was a big deal at this time. And people are like, well, what's going on here? Let's talk to our, our uh, scientists of the day. What do you think? And this is what they found out. First of all, Faraday says in the article, uh, he believed in the integrity of the table turners, quote unquote. That's what they called the people who were able to do this. People who could turn tables, apparently would just touch using their mind or some other uh, facilitation of the spirit medium. They don't know themselves. They're just saying, well, we're not really sure, but we can do this. So with some, he says, the table moved in the direction they intended or wanted. With others, it didn't. Interesting point there in that it's not totally controllable. Right. Sometimes it is with some people under some conditions. It's all over the place. It's a crapshoot. And that's what they said in the Philip experiment. Uh, many times the table would levitate. It, mm -hmm. would, it would chase people. Yeah. It would go after <laughs> the new people in the room. Yeah, it was excited. And if you watch this footage from it or you, or you read about what happened in these experiments, the folks were just like, they're moving out of the way. They don't even know what's happening. Right. It's unpredictable. Right. Yeah. These are under controlled circumstances with one of the best uh, scientists of the day, as far as he can tell. And these are just his observations. Now, could he have been fooled? Well, certainly, as we said before, anybody can be fooled. It's not yeah. an indication that, uh, right, it's not an indication that trying to measure this is a fool's errand. Now, what Faraday's also said, to your point here with Carpenter, is that uh, he detected movement through a quasi-involuntary action, is what he called it. And he believed the intention or expectation of the movers had an influence upon the effect and affected the success or failure. Everything that we've been talking about at the top of the show here is that uh, you got to yeah. believe it's going to work. And you have an intention yeah. and expectation that it's going to work. And that had an influence. Now, it didn't necessarily mean success 100% of the time. It's just that it had an influence that was significant to him. Now, Faraday also found no particular force other than the pressure of the hands at work here. No electrical or magnetic forces were detected, as we previously said. So the first test, again, we'll have this article. You can kind of read it for yourself. And it just took a while to kind of picture what he was doing here. Because, again, he's very explicit with how he describes what he's doing. Because what he wants to find out is... Are the hands leading the table? Are the hands moving in concert, meaning at the same exact time as the table? Or do the hands move and the table follows? Or as some of the table turners say, 
they described it as what they felt was our hands are following the movement of the table. The table is leading us right. wherever this force is. We're just kind of following it. Kind of like people with the planchette, with the Ouija board. Well, our fingertips yeah. are on it, but this thing's moving on its own. We're just following it. And right. so it's a little bit like what's going on here. And that's what he's kind of trying to measure here, not with a planchette and a Ouija board, but with this table. Now, I would love to see if he got the same result with a Ouija board. Yeah. What's moving first? Yeah. Is it the planchette or is it the people's fingers do the movement first? And then, of course, the planchette follows with the little felt legs. Or is it exactly at the same time, planchette plus fingers? By the way, that was the name of my high school band, The People's Fingers. <laughs> Ooh, well, <laughs> it was a different time, yeah, folks. It was the first experiment, though, what he did is very is pretty simple. So he had, as he said, balls of wax, or as he said, soft cement, as he called. It. And again, again, that's hard to picture because a lot of the terms are different. And also had ingredients that are readily available today, so we may not be familiar with them. But he took wax that was softened with turpentine. It's a little bit of a sticky tack, maybe like that blue stuff that you can hang uh, posters and pictures with or-, or uh, Yeah, I, I got that. For me, when I was reading it, I felt like, oh, this must be that like goopy stuff when you try to right. scrape a sticker off a window right. and it's what's left behind. Yeah, so it's not a hard cement, <laughs> but he, so what he did though was uh, uh, he had squares of cardboard and he had yeah. stacks of them and in between them, the cement. So the idea is that he had the, the table turner place their fingers on the top stack the bottom was uh, marked off in pencil, so you could see if you're just trying to turn the table by pushing it, well, the yeah. top sheet of the cardboard should move first, right? And then the other ones will kind of catch up, and you could see like, oh, well. Right. You what's could... moving first? Right, yeah. what's moving first? Now, it would be weird if they tried to move it, and the bottom cardboard is moving out first, and the top one where the fingers are is lagging behind, then the table's moving on its own. By the way, what's interesting about this, and this is why Faraday was such a brilliant experimentalist, when you think right. about this, you think about like when they do crash tests with cars and the crash test dummies or anything yeah. where they're like, they put the chalk on everything mm -hmm. so that you know where the dummy hits the, yeah, the, the blue, head of the windshield the or the A-pillar. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah, or the paint. Yeah, the paint hits this point at that point. Faraday is pioneering that, and he's pioneering it with table tilting, right? Like way before anybody, like they're using that technology today for crash tests. That he was like, "How can we figure out what's happening here? Yeah, where are the collisions happening physically? What part is moving? What other part first? Yeah, and we're doing that with uh, seances and table tilting <laughs> before <laughs> the crash tests come along. That's a great example because with a uh, crash test dummy and uh, NHTSA, yeah, you have the most advanced electronics monitoring everything. On the other hand, you've got uh, blue paint and a dummy." You know, so you yeah. don't need right. to see where their head hits. You could just see with the paint. And that's kind of what he's doing here. And so he tried different experiments trying to perfect the best measurement for this phenomenon. So again, what he said was that he believed in the integrity of the table turners, that they were earnest, sincere people trying to do the best with this effect. Demonstrate something without yeah. trying to necessarily pull something over. Right. And he's right there in their they face. They believed it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. They, they Right. Yeah. They, they had no, uh, there were no ulterior motives, as he could tell, to do this. They didn't get famous from this. They're just anonymous folks who could do this. And he was right there observing every aspect. In fact, creating the table and the little, uh, the measurement devices. The next one, though, is a little more sophisticated. He calls that the index test. And it is harder to explain, so I'm not going to do it. But what the idea is that <laughs> it's a little bit of a fulcrum resting on a pin. And I think the idea is that uh, there's, a, there's a long piece of cardboard. As the person moves, you should be able to see 
what is moving first? Again, that is his main goal. What's moving right. what? What's moving first? And so it's a bit of a fulcrum on their fingers. And you could kind of tell that this thing would tilt once the table starts moving or once their hand starts moving. I think essentially it's a tiny seesaw. I think that's the simplest way to explain uh, sure. it. Sure. Right? I'll go with that. Yeah. yeah that sounds good because we need to move on. <laughs> now, here's the, the interesting part of that, regardless of uh, what you can picture and build, because I, I would like to build this for our own tests, was that this now goes back to his observations the results of this particular test go back to what you had just said about the intention and the mindset. Because with the index test, what Faraday observed was that the table didn't seem to move once the turner was aware that their hand was moving. It seems like the thing where observing or being aware of the experiment changed the outcome or made it yeah. not work at all. You've certainly yeah. heard of that. I guess not totally tied with uh, Schrodinger's cat, which the option or any- Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, you start there. You know where you keep going? Skinwalker Ranch, every haunting Once you <laughs> ever try to investigate. <laughs> yes. Everything. It's everything. Once you this start paying attention, it, that yes. again, we're not getting a woo-woo. No, woo. it, it, it goes just, back it, to you, it, Forrest. It, yeah. Seriously. And this is a big picture thing. Like we're just kind of like, oh, this happened and that happened. But like- this is a thread that runs through everything we've ever covered. Right. When you look at it, it knows, it right. changes. And that's the whole imposter syndrome. Right. It's got all these different labels. But it's like you were talking about when you were at Waverly. You're packing up, you're leaving, nothing's happening. And this person walks yeah. by in a baseball cap where no person <laughs> should be. Or at Skinwalker Ranch, they, it they knows I just set up all the, these cameras the, the camera off, and yeah. the thing happens behind the camera and right. also disables the camera. Right. What we're trying to say, folks, is there's a thread here. There's a connection. Mm -hmm. There's a common ground between all of these kinds of events. Everything is connected. Yeah, I That's believe so. But here's the interesting angle with this experiment and this phenomenon in this particular setting. Right here with just this phenomenon, I think what's happening is that what is anticipating it is it the person. And here's where that's, you could say like, well, yeah, it's not a spirit. It's anything crazy. It's just a psychic uh, power. You know, it's this unseen mental power from the person connected to the physiomotor control, whatever you want to call it. And that is moving the table. It's like, but as we said earlier, that alone is pretty mind blowing, right? Is it was just the right. person now yeah. controlling a movement of the table just because of what they think or don't believe or don't even know. That's pretty amazing. So in this case, what we're saying here is uh, what Faraday was saying is that with the original index, and that's the little measurement device he built, once the turner became aware inadvertently that the index was moving, you know, his little uh, fulcrum seesaw thing here, the mm -hmm. table didn't move as it had before. Quote, the effect was never carried far enough to move the table for the motion of the index corrected the judgment of the experimenter who became aware that inadvertently a side force had been exerted. Now, here's what he did was that uh, he said sometimes it would work, the turning, when there was a, look at, let's say, a piece of cardboard shielding their view of this index that he built. Right. So they couldn't see it working. They didn't know if it was what was moving. Right, like in, in Ghostbusters right. when he was behind right. the shield. <laughs> right, the, the Z, uh, what's it called? The Z card. Like, what do you see? A star. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Bankman's a little, a little cheating. <laughs> in this case, though, or you would have them turn their heads. So what he found with yeah. the experiment is that that seemed to work. When they looked at it moving, it didn't work so well because right. they could see the effect or that changed the anticipation or the expectation somehow. 
Like yeah. I said, you could see the effect, the experiment happening, and that kind of ruined the experiment. I don't want to derail you, but I have to just sure, for a second. Sure. Because you're stitching everything together here, or or we are yeah. maybe inadvertently, mm. or but this is the whole point of this experiment. It's the more you think about it, the less it works. That was the yeah. original idea yeah. behind the Philip experiment. The reason that they started to get so many great results was because they got into, and this is if you read the book, this mm-hmm. is what comes through. They got really relaxed. They went into yes. a childlike state. Yes. They stopped thinking about trying to get results and they just got silly and they sang songs like 99 bottles of beer on the wall. They did these things that were mm-hmm. just ridiculous and childlike and accepting and open. And when they did that, the results started to pour in. Mm-hmm. And this is something for all you paranormal investigators out there. Mm. When you take all your gear and you pile into a place and you're all serious about it, you're undermining yourself before you've even started. What you've got to do, and it's understandable to be concerned. You're scared of the creeper at Waverly Place. You're scared of the things that might happen in there. But you can't go in there with that mindset. And I know I'm a fine one to talk about this. I'm <laughs> definitely not going back to the Sally House anytime soon. Take a drink. Ooh, ooh. But my point is... You go in and you set the gear up. You're happy-go-lucky. You're going to get more results when you're not paying attention to the gear or what's happening. Mm -hmm. It's very rooted in physics and the idea of observation and Mm -hmm. all those ideas about like when you're looking, the experiment behaves differently Mm -hmm. than when you're not looking. The car doesn't make the noise that's been bothering you when you go to the mechanic. (laughs) It's, it's, and then <laughs> it's right, done, right, well, I can't right. reproduce it. And then you drive, it does on the drive home. Yeah, right. And right. you talk to mechanics like, yeah, I, I drove it around a few blocks. I didn't hear anything. And, oh, man, that squeak. You know what? There's yeah. There may be more to that. You're making a joke for I us, know. but they, that might be a real thing. It might be a real thing. <laughs> right? or, I mean, at yeah, this point, or, I'm starting to think it is. Or honestly. we're just, yeah. or the here's the other aspect of that, which I believe, is that you just notice it more. But here's what's interesting about this process. To your point about ghost hunting, yeah, I think there is some play with that. There's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I want to backtrack a little bit. It depends on what you're dealing with. True. If you're dealing with observational information on the kind of stuff that's always there and rather benign... I think the less engaged you are, maybe the better. If you're dealing with something that needs to make a point, it might not matter. Right. I mean, I don't know if you believe any of this at all. I'm just, (laughs) you know, I I, I don't know where these theories are coming. Just, you know, we've been looking at this stuff for a while now and we're seeing these common threads. Right. That's all I'm saying. Well, look, I firmly believe when people, rightfully so, say none of this is uh, measurable, provable. Right. This is my personal belief is I don't think it's meant to be totally provable. I think you can get a handle on some aspects of it. You can certainly see a lot of weird stuff yourself but it's going to Michigan J frog you every time. Yeah, I'll make a million bucks off of this. Certainly you could have your own ghost series and uh, that seems to do well for a lot of folks. And you get little... It's not a lot. Well, you, it's no, like you really, folks. I know. You, Everyone else is not making money. Well, here's the, the thing about this is I don't think you're going to find the proof that just opens up everything, right? That it's, yeah. uh, well, here you go. This is how it all works. But it's an effect that can be measured. I think that's a good start. That's what's happening right here. It's an effect... That can be measured. That's what he's doing. So to get back to this, what he said, Faraday, is that the Turner's hand started unconsciously creeping in the direction previously agreed upon in some of these tests and some of these, because he did a bunch of tests with uh, uh, various people, some with various talents and results. What he went was like, okay, move it to the left. And what he noticed with his index device is that they started to, the hand started to unconsciously creep in the direction previously agreed upon. 
sometimes. However, the effect didn't happen when the turner could see the index move. So as we just said, when they could see the little fulcrum move, it's like it didn't work because they could see the effect in a, another representation rather than the table itself just moving. So it's like they couldn't see their effect being measured while they did it or the table wouldn't move. Okay, I can't follow that. Can you explain that better? Not to put you on the spot. No, no, no. I mean, it's, again, it was, I tried to uh, boil this down so I could understand it. And I don't fully gronk it, which is why I'm going to read a little passage here from the the paper. And also we may... It's grok. It's not grok. No, I I know, but I like to say grok and I like to say smaug. Yeah. And I like to say words. I say art. Actually, also... It's uh, grok. It's not gronk. Gronk is a football player. I also don't like uh, swag. It's too thin sounding. I like to say swag. Yeah, S-C-H. you're just, you're adding. It's your, a, poly, yeah. it looked, man, it's my own uh, grammatical world. You can be a part <laughs> or not. Here's the, the deal, though, is that we're probably going to read from the paper anyway about his conclusions, because again, what I liked about it, which, which was funny, is that he ends up Faraday saying like, I don't know about the other mental aspect. Go check out this guy. Right. Which he meant was Carpenter. So wait, 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 I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that like the point there being that Faraday, he's a little bit, he's like, I'm trying to stick to the science here. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you want to get... To the other part, go back to Carpenter, you know, who yeah, we talked about yeah. a little bit earlier. Well, the He's psychological like, wait, wait, wait. aspect. I, I'm a serious scientist addressing this thing that some people don't think is serious, because at this point, these guys are all super concerned about how they look if they study this stuff. It's like they couldn't see their effect being measured while they did it. So right. there, one, there is some genuine effect, as far as I could tell from the paper and what he what he says. If you don't see that, please uh, let us know. No, we had, we'll show you the paper. Yeah, you can read it yourself. It's not easy to read. Yeah, like I said, it's a little T-H-I-C-C. It's a little little thick side. (laughs) But interesting, like I said, I had to ruminate on it a bit. But what he's saying is that, again, the effect would happen until you could see, and this this is what I'm saying, is that they can obviously see their hands, right, as they're moving the table. They could see it working with the pads and the stacks of cardboard before, separated by little bits of the soft cement, as, he's, as he calls it. But with that device that uh, tilted and measured the movement of the table independent of the hands in a way, I guess is maybe a way to put it, if they could see that happening, then it wouldn't work so well. So, right. like I said, once they saw that happening, this measuring device, and maybe it just was enough to trip up their confidence. You know what I'm saying? It's, it was just enough, whether it was psychological or, I don't know, in, invisibly mechanical somehow. Electro, well, as he said, there was no electrical detection of any, any force outside of the person. Somehow that was enough to screw up their confidence, perhaps. Much like, as we talked about a little bit earlier, when Sid, one of the overseers of the Philip experiment, and seemed to be a favorite of Philip, whatever that force was, because he responded to Sid a lot when he would come in. Right. And by the way, here's something I want to point out that's super interesting about that. Sid was a favorite of the group itself. Mm-hmm. He was the youngest one there. He was a college student. They got all got excited when he grew a beard. He was just like, he was the guy that was the most full of life in the group. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. I think it's interesting that Philip, the fictional ghost, mm-hmm latched on to this character that also the group, when you read the book, the group was also very enamored with. Sure. And and socially. Yeah. That figures into all of this. Like I said, there's a lot of moving parts here and they're all somewhat significant or play their part into the success or failure of this experiment and phenomenon and result. And what Sid did was 
which was interesting, which was what I'm getting at here, is that there was one time where Philip wasn't really playing along well. And so Sid was joking. It's like, well, Philip, if you don't want to play along, you know, we can drop you and go get another uh, another unseeable entity to talk to. And they had a, a bit of pause right there. Yeah. Because the activity all. stopped and they're like, wait a second, if we doubt this or if we maybe upset, quote unquote, Philip, and he goes away, that's going to affect the outcome here, the experiment. In the time it would take to pronounce but a single syllable of my name, a trillion cosmoses would flare into existence and sink into eternal night. When I am not concerning myself with the harvesting of souls or my plan for taking over the mortal world, I... I'm listening to astonishing legends to gain knowledge of my potential adversaries. Now let's get back to the show. <laughs> the other thing that's fascinating about this too is it's a classic kind of thing where it's like a room full of kids and I'm going to draw a, a weird comparison here. I'm going back to my childhood or mm. whatever and hanging out with my uh, my friends when I was young and you dump a bunch of Legos on the ground and you're going to play with them for like three mm -hmm. hours. And this is before Lego sets had predefined shapes. It was just a bunch of Legos right. and you had to build whatever there was not, you couldn't buy it in a kit. And you, you're laying there on the ground with your best friend. I remember doing this when I was a kid you're building for hours and you're putting stuff together and you start talking and you're just talking and it's a bunch of nonsense because it's just this social, like, I don't know, you tell me. And you're not even know what you're saying mm -hmm. while you're building mm -hmm. the stuff and it just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. You can see how these folks, they're hanging out so much. They're getting into that thing where we're like, oh, we're being silly and childlike. And we're just like, and finally Sid's like, well, we don't need you, Philip. We can get anybody we want. And then the room gets deathly quiet and no more table, no more nothing. And it's like, oops, I broke the mood. Yeah. We're out of sync. Here. Right. It took them a while to get results again, any rapping or scratching or knocking or moving because right. they doubted. It's like, well, oh, did we inadvertently get Philip upset and he went away or whatever this right. was? Did we just now cancel it in our own minds? And now, uh, so they said, let's not do that again. Let's not get testy with him, right? My other favorite uh, non-corporeal uh, entity, 2109. Yes. We get testy in the vertical plane. That's a reference to the vertical plane where it's like, yes, that's a series we've done, folks. Look it up. If you haven't heard it, find the vertical plane. And what's funny is that he gets testy with other people from his era or time or place. It's like, how yes. dare you get on here? You're not supposed to be here. And just is something connected to that going on here? Well, that's the character of Philip, which you could read is that he did have a personality, which may be just an offshoot or a mirroring or extension of the group's personality. He had a sense of humor. He would respond. He liked singing. He liked beer. He liked all these things, which again, may be just a reflection of the group hive mind here. Uh, right. But here's just to finish up the Faraday thing and, and read yes. where he stood on it. This is a passage from the letter in the times that they're talking about here worth reproducing here. And that's Faraday saying this as illustrating, in other words, the value of this method of self-conviction. This is what we're talking about. Quote, the result, says Professor Faraday, was that when the party saw the index, it remained very steady. Okay, so when they could see it, it didn't move. When it was hidden from them, or they looked away from it, it wavered about, though they believed that they always pressed directly downwards. And when, 
the table did not move, there was still a resultant of hand force in the direction in which it was wished the table should move, which, however, was exercised quite unwittingly by the party operating. Now, okay, that's now you're hearing yeah, the language. I can't follow I know. it. I can't follow it. What's <laughs> so, happening? <laughs> okay, so the people believe that they're always pressing down, right. but the device showed the index was that when they weren't looking at it. Yeah. It wavered about, so the effect was happening. It sometimes moved in the direction they intended, sometimes not. So as he says, there was still a resultant of hand force in the direction in which it was wished that the table should move. However, it was not happening under full control or volition of the table mover. So you know what I'm saying here is it moved, but not always in the agreed upon fashion. When he says, and that means like move the table to the left. Okay, I'm going to try and do that. They believe they're pressing down, right? which is not really happening. It's moving, but again, it's a willy-nilly, or as uh, Charles Fort would say, a wild talent. Right. Perhaps uncontrollable. Also, what he's saying here is that even when the table did not move, there was a bit of hand force in the direction and that it was wished to move, but that was not totally consciously controlled by the party operating the table. And he goes on to say the resultant it is which in the course of the waiting time, while the fingers and hands become stiff, numb, insensible by continued pressure. So imagine you're doing this for quite a while, right? And after a while, you know, hey, press down on something quite firmly or uh, with some uh, a bit of force is that you cut off circulation to your fingers. They become numb and sensate. So again, what he's saying is that the resultant it is which in the course of the waiting time while the fingers and hands become stiff, numb, and insensible by continued pressure, this grows yep. up to an amount sufficient to move the table or the substances pressed upon. But the most valuable effect of this test apparatus, which was in parentheses here, made afterward more perfect and independent of the table. So he, again, he's modifying this index thing that he's invented to measure this. It's getting better and better. And that's what you do with science. You, you, you approve upon your experiments. He says, as soon as the index is placed before the most earnest and they perceive, as in my presence, they have always done, that it tells truly whether they are pressing downwards only more obliquely, then all effects of table turning cease even though the parties persevere, earnestly desiring motion, till they become weary and worn out. So they keep trying. It's not happening as soon as they can see the measurement. No prompting, he goes on to say, or checking of the hands is needed. The power is gone. And this is only because the parties are made conscious of what they were really doing mechanically and so are unable unwittingly to deceive themselves. That's a key part here. Are they deceiving themselves into thinking they have some power? So. Reading a bit back from the paper here towards his conclusion, Faraday goes on to say, no one can suppose that looking at the index can in any way interfere with the transfer of electricity or any other power from the hand to the board under it or to the table. So he's saying like, it doesn't make sense that just looking at the thing affects the outcome, right? If the board tends to move, it may do so. The index does not confine it. And if the table tends to move, there's no reason why it should not. If both were influenced by any power to move together, they may do so, as they did indeed when the apparatus was tied and the mind and muscles left unwatched and unchecked. What he's referring to here is at one point, he ties the apparatus together so that you could actually move it with your hands if you pressed hard enough. 
So you, you try different levels of it, like, okay, because he had glass rollers under some boards at one point, right? Just uh, if you right. were just press, uh, the boards would roll, it wouldn't move the table. And then he kept adjusting that to like, okay, more pressure, more pressure. Now tie the boards together. You know, like at what point do you need some friction to get the hands and the board to move together? Okay, so now we get to the part where he kind of uh, sums up his thoughts and uh, how he feels about it. He says, I must bring this long description to a close. I am a little ashamed of it, for I think in the present age and in this part of the world, it ought not to have been required. Nevertheless, I hope it may be useful. There are many whom I do not expect to convince, but I may be allowed to say that I cannot undertake to answer such objections as may be made. I state my own convictions as an experimental philosopher, and find it no more necessary to enter into controversy on this point than on any other in science, as the nature of matter, or inertia, or the magnetization of light, on which I may differ from others. The world will decide sooner or later in all such cases, and I have no doubt very soon and correctly in the present instance. No, he may be off by that uh, wishful thinking. <laughs> it did not get solved. And then he goes on to say, like, hey, if you want to see this apparatus, it's at Mr. Newman's 122 Regent Street, which I love back then. You could just give somebody's address and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, sir. May I see your apparatus? It's like, come on in. Well, just come yeah. over here. He's Not, wearing a blue shirt. Uh, yeah, it doesn't turn into a home invasion robbery. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I just love that, though. It's like, oh, if you want to see the thing, it's right there. Go ask him. You know, knock first. He goes on to say, further, I may say, I have sought earnestly for cases of lifting by attraction and indications of attraction in any form. This is what he's studying, right? The magnetic forms, the bending of light with magnetism, but have gained no traces of effects. So he's looking for this invisible lifting power, perhaps right. what uh, it's all connected, going back to Edley Scalden and Scott. The Coral Castle. That's right. The episode we almost <laughs> never did, but then eventually we did. And That's it's true. so old now, people don't even know that joke anymore. I know, but it's what is still one of my favorite uh, stories because how did he do yes. it? Well, people would say like, well, you just walked them there with some ropes. Like, nope. Okay. Well, anyway, so this is what I like here is that finally, I beg to direct attention to the discourse delivered by Dr. Carpenter at the Royal Institution on the 12th of March, 1852, entitled On the Influence of Suggestion and Modifying and Directing muscular movement, independently of volition, which, especially in the latter part, should be considered in reference to table moving by all who are interested in the subject. So he says, uh, talk to that guy. That's what I, was, that's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> Look, man, I, I did my thing. I, I, as far as I can explain yeah. it, if you want to know what's going on in the head, perhaps, or maybe into the realms of the psychic uh, powers, Dr. Carpenter should be your man to talk to. Right. So a uh, right. brief explanation of who he was. William Benjamin Carpenter was a noted English physician, physiologist, and invertebrate zoologist with a list of bona fides as long as your arm. E.g., he was awarded with the fellowship of the Royal Society of London for his contributions to medical science and the CB, or the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, for his contributions to education. As stated in Adrian Desmond's The Politics of Evolution, one of the founding tenets of Carpenter's beliefs and approach to science was implanted from his father, a prominent Unitarian clergyman, that the world could be understood and explained through what was called at the time, quote, a naturalistic cosmogony, end quote, or that the universe operates on a set of laws that could be understood through physical causations. That's important to note here because what he's going to do is that uh, he says that it's understandable. There's a physical reaction. These things are knowable. That's his personal 
basic inherent philosophy on all this stuff, uh, because it's interesting to note because of his views and assessments on the influence of suggestion in modifying and directing muscular movement, independently of volition, which is the title of his talk and article. So as Scott has read a little bit about what the ideas were happening with Carpenter and his study of this phenomenon, I made some notes about what I found interesting about his observations. Now, this, again, comes from uh, the Royal Institution of Great Britain, Dr. William B. Carpenter, and this is from our old PDF scan of an entry in the weekly evening meeting notes of this journal from March 12th, 1852. I'm not going to read the title because it's uh, it's a little long. Like everything in the 1850s was, uh, as Scott said, <laughs> it was a little drawn out. Could have used a little snipping, but that's the way they talked and wrote back then. So... What's interesting about the phenomenon itself is that it had a name, as he says, public interest at that time in what Carpenter describes as a misnomer of the electrobiological or simply biological phenomenon. That's what people were calling it, the biological or electro. And he said, that's a little bit of a, not the correct term. A physiologist should therefore determine if it's genuine. And he's saying like, uh, yeah, that's what our job is. Find out if this is real. Secondly here, should find out what the condition of the nervous system must be in to facilitate the phenomenon. So now, instead of taking a look at the mechanical, as Faraday did, he's going to look at uh, the body, the physiological state of mind. And the lecturer here, seems Dr. Carpenter in this case, believed that the phenomenon was real as it had been demonstrated to him and other scientific observers by numerous individuals they trusted. So he also right. believes that, like, no, something's going on here. These aren't just fakers and, and hucksters. Something's happening, but what is happening with the body when this happens? This is the other aspect of it. What's happening with the mind? Well, Carpenter believes, it seems, that in the state of being under the control of the phenomenon, the subject is in a state of reverie, he says, and not entirely thinking for themselves. So reverie being maybe in kind of a meditative or dream state for a bit. Control from without not within. Similar to being hypnotized, where you have your senses but are under the power of suggestion. And he goes on to say, quote, all the phenomena of the biologized state, when attentively examined, will be found to consist in the occupation of the mind by the ideas which have been suggested to it, and in the influence which these ideas exert upon the actions of the body. Thus, the operator asserts that the subject cannot rise from his chair. Now, he's talking about uh, hypnosis here. Or yes. open his eyes or continue yeah. to hold a stick. And the one subject uh, thereby becomes so completely possessed with the fixed belief of the impossibility of the act that he is incapacitated from executing it. Not because his will is controlled by that of another. And that's important to remember that. But because his will is in abeyance and his muscles are entirely under the guidance of his ideas. So again, when he is made to drink a glass of water and is assured that his coffee or wine or milk that assurance, delivered in a decided tone, makes a stronger impression on his mind than that which he receives through his taste, smell, or sight. And not being able to judge and compare, he yields himself up to the dominant idea, quote-unquote. Here again, if we perceive that it is not really the will of the operator which controls the sensations of the subject, but the suggestion of the operator which excites a corresponding idea, the falsity of which is not corrected, simply because the mind of the subject, being completely engrossed by it, cannot apprehend the truth less forcibly impressed on it through his own senses. Now, here's what that means to me. Under hypnosis, a person can be convinced with suggestion that the room that they are in is very hot. 
It's getting very hot in there. You look at the thermostat. Ooh, the temperature's 95. It's rising. It's rising. And the person will start to sweat. Conversely, yeah. you say, ooh, the, it seems very chilly in here. I can see your breath. I can see your breath in the room. Uh, the temperature's dropping. The thermometer is shrinking to the little bottom there. It's, it's getting down to about 40. And the person will start to chatter their teeth. So there is a yeah. physiological response to the suggestion, not in the way that the hypnotist said, I want you to sweat. Start sweating now. Sweat upon your brow. Start sweating. I can see beads forming. It's the suggestion put into the mind of the person being hypnotized that takes over what they're actually feeling. Because as they say in hypnosis, you know, you can't convince somebody to go commit a crime or hurt themselves. You're still in control, but you can be influenced by the power of suggestion. You're now drinking delicious dark roast coffee, but really it's water. And your mouth knows what water is like. But the, the idea here is that the suggestion has been put into your mind that it is coffee so overpowers what you're actually feeling that you believe it. Yeah. And also with the hypnotism, you can take an object and said, this is a, it's a hot needle. Now you're not going to be terribly injured, but this is a, uh, it's a hot piece of metal. We're going to do this experiment, which you agreed to, right? Can I touch you with it? Uh, and you can touch them with that and they'll raise a blister. When you tell them that, oh, that was not uh, that hot. That was just an experiment. The blister will go down. So right. it's the same with telling the subject that they're in a hot apartment or uh, so cold that they start to shiver or that they will soon fall asleep. Your mind becomes so engrossed with the suggestion that the belief of your mind overpowers your senses and your body. And that is what Carpenter is saying. Now, as it relates to table turning and Philip, have you convinced yourself so much that he exists that you actually respond physiologically, subconsciously, and voluntarily? with your muscle movements and turning the table and in hearing the raps. But even if you do that, how are you levitating a table? Well, that's the question. <laughs> how are you raising a table yeah. up off the shag carpet? How are you sliding it across the room? How are you getting it up onto one leg? And, and like I said, we did some of these experiments on Patreon. You can see that where we're playing around with it. I was alone and still trying to, and I was able to tilt the table yeah, and yeah, all that. Yeah. But, but I think if you looked closely at my hands and you compared what I was doing to the footage of, from the people of the Philip experiment, it doesn't look the same. It does no. not look the same. That's the part of this that I'm, 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 I'm a little bound up in this because we're, we're looking at what these scientists are saying about it. And I put scientists in quotes because some people are going to be like, these people aren't scientists or they wouldn't be <laughs> no. looking at this in the first place. And, uh, you know, I'm making, I'm doing my hands up and down, right. making thumbs. But my question is... <laughs> If you're trying to be analytical about this, what are they saying here? Are they saying mm. that these folks are doing all the movement, mm -hmm. they just don't realize it? Or are they saying the movement is happening? Because that's the thing that I thought that Carpenter was saying. I can't remember if it was Carpenter or somebody else was saying, from our quote at the mm -hmm. opening of the show, this isn't a force. This is not about a force that's happening, right. that's emanating from the right. person. These are actions that are happening. Yeah. And it's like the body is following the action rather than the body is precipitating the action. Uh, yeah. I'm still not clear after all these papers we've read. And <laughs> right. these, I'm, I'm still not clear on what their take was back then. Ooh, Are uh, you? And I'm not trying to put you on the no, spot. No, here's, just you know, it's you. a little like, again, what we covered in the Watsika Wonder. And yeah. you're talking about people like William James, Richard Hodgson. 
uh, some of the biggest names in parapsychological research at the time. Uh, well, they got wrapped up in it too, uh, too much, but we you know William James, father of American psychology. And the fascinating part of that, when you think, are they communicating with a spirit? They believed that it was possible, and I guess I do, but it was more so that there was a psychic connection being made between the person who had the knowledge in their brain, right? Because you can answer stuff like, well, okay, to prove you're real, what did my great grandma used to call me when I was four years old? And then, you know, right. uh, she passed away and I, sadly, and I, uh, no one's ever called me that again. It's like, my little boopy. It's like, oh, how did you know yeah. that? It's like, well, you knew the answer. Somehow that person, though, gleaned the answer from you psychically in a way. Or... It's in that big database. It could be in the big database. We don't know. But here's what they believe. Everything that's said. It's it's like (laughs) trademark law. I can't remember what form of law it is. I'm probably not saying this right. But there's a point at which like when you publish it or you say it, it automatically belongs to you for a minute. It's not the same kind of thing as if you hire a lawyer. But it's like, nope, you said this first. So it's yours. And maybe that's happening with this big database in the sky. I think there's a lot of things that could be happening and maybe borrowing from each other as far as uh, to complete the phenomenon. I mean, there's a, uh, uh, the name escapes me, but it was really interesting also with this group of folks with Watsika who believe that when you see a ghost, you're projecting some thought form that's right. already in your, let's say, hard drive in your mind that's being yeah. affected. And so what you're seeing just gets blurted out like... <laughs> in your mind's eye of sorts, and it's not really there. It's a question about reality. Does it exist outside of our brains? Kind of like consciousness and the belief now by, or the study that's happening with consciousness uh, studies, does your brain contain exactly everything you are? Or is there some aspect of your consciousness that exists outside of your sack of uh, meat in your head, right? And so that's the big question. I think with these with these fellows here of this time period is that they believe that it was possible, but maybe what was happening was that somehow we're picking this up and it's not so much ghosts, it's each other. And we have this extraordinary ability to key in on this. And again, going back to uh, Charles Fort, who would say, perhaps it was a long ago survival adaptability instinct or skill that was picked up throughout the uh, eons of evolution to know if there's a, don't go over in that copse of trees, there's a lion over there. Well, Ooh, how'd you know gosh. that? You didn't hear anything. Yeah. You didn't smell anything. Yeah. You had yeah. a sense like, yeah, I, we're not going to go hunting over there. And uh, we're, right. we're going to go pick berries over here. And that kept you alive. And that's just a, a wild talent, as he called it. But we could say like, well, how'd you know that? You could just guess that. Well, after a while, can you not get better at guessing? That's also brought up. It's like, well, the, the results are no better than guessing. Well, is guessing. Right. A part of right. a, like a low level form of psychic ability, you're just not very good at it. And the people who yeah. are good at it, it's like, well, that's uh, that's pretty crazy. And look, no one's 100% accurate all the time, but the better psychics are above 80%, which is pretty remarkable. Right. If you could right, say right, at right. eight out of 10 times, you guessed it right, that's better than guessing. I think. Yeah. So what we're going to talk <laughs> about here is like, what's happening? And I think it could be a power or form of something that's being transferred through the person but it, what you're saying is, it, could it also be a spiritual entity, right? That's the big question. Right. That's one of the big questions. Right. And that's right. uh, one of their principles that we've gotten away from here because, again, it didn't really happen. So they focus, at least in the book, about uh, rapping, scratchings, table moving, which is pretty extraordinary and pretty wild. But what they really wanted to do is, can we conjure up a group hallucination? And they called it that, hallucination, 
of this character uh, that we've all just decided with our hive mind exists. And there's a term for that. Hi, I'm Larry Froin. And when I'm working in the limestone mines of central Indiana, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. That comes back to an idea, and, and something that we want to talk about in the big picture mm -hmm. of this, is the idea that there these might be thought forms. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of types of thought forms. I just want to read this summation here. This is from uh, the Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. This mm -hmm. is a book we've mentioned mm -hmm. multiple times. God rest her soul. It's an amazing author, and uh, she put out a, a lot of books. Uh, our friend Troy Taylor is mentioned in this book. It has a section on Philip. I want to read these last couple of paragraphs here. This is from page 286 of that book. The Owens experimenters believed that they succeeded in demonstrating that a group's subconscious could produce physical effects characterizing a poltergeist. Quote, PK by committee, end quote, as they called it. The messages wrapped out came from the group's collective subconscious. The experimenters further believed that they were only a step away from producing a physical manifestation of a spirit. That, however, was not achieved. After about 1977, interest waned and activities eventually were discontinued. The experiments were time-consuming, and after several years, the group felt that they had made little headway in understanding the basic physical phenomena that were occurring. Since then, the Owens have from time to time assembled small groups to pursue more experiments with small successes. Mm -hmm. Raps are easy to produce, but progressing beyond that point is difficult. Yeah. The table tilting seems trickier than the raps, but what this, what Mary Ellen Guiley is saying here is that the raps were the more difficult thing, uh. but getting past that is hard, which I also think is fascinating because yeah. what they wanted was an apparition and they never got there. There's a theme running through all this, which is intention and expectation. And everybody we've yes. been reading about now and talking about has said that that figures prominently here. The other thing he noticed is that when he talked to the table turners, who again, he believed were earnest, they thought like, no, the table starts moving and my hand is following as we talked about the planchette, right? The right. planchette is moving and I, my fingers are just following it. That's what they thought. But what he measured was that often the hands, the finger pressure was moving first and then the table would follow. Right. Now, here's what's weird. I wasn't really clear on this, but it seemed like it's not that they were pushing or dragging the table, but the, the table was following behind the hand, as he said or described. But there was still something weird going on, right? And that the hands are leading, but the table is now following the psychic energy of the, of the table turner. It's just not how they perceived it. Because they said, right. like, well, I don't know what's happening. I'm just kind of the follower here. It's like, well, no, you may be instigating this and wanting this to happen. And so it's happening but it's happening as an after effect of your motion. Right. And not always, but sometimes. So that's what's interesting here. But is that's what's happening here with people trying to create a, an entity? Again, this is the big question. Is, uh, are they in command? Is the entity in command? Is it a shared symbiosis between the creator and the, the conjurer and the, uh, the subject the, that's being created? Who's in control here? Because again, what I gathered was that it's not always the same thing or, you know, you, you can't tell. Sometimes this happens, sometimes this happens, sometimes nothing happens. And I want to talk about the wrapping too, before we transition into this next section. And this comes from another one of my favorite books in the Astonishing Library. It's uh, the Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained. Mm. 
which is one of my favorite titles. I love to read this because <laughs> it's very much like Tobin's Spirit Guide. Yes. The Chamber's Dictionary of the Unexplained. If you if you can get a copy, I highly recommend picking mm. it up. But uh, here's a section in that on spirit wrapping. And this is really important because this is going to point back to some historical stuff that we've talked about on our own show. Right. Spirit wrapping, apparent communication from spirits in the form of tapping, knocking, and banging noises supposedly produced by the interaction of spirits with physical objects. This, by the way, is from uh, page 640 of this book. Since the Victorian heyday of the spiritualism movement, spirit wrapping has been an important ingredient of many seances. Wrapping is supposedly a spirit communication by hitting a solid object to make a sharp noise, sometimes explained as occurring through the means of a brief materialization of ectoplasm, allowing the spirit to affect the physical world. The spirit wrapping craze began with the Fox sisters in 1848, after they allegedly used this method to establish communication with the spirit for the first time. Initially, a method was used in which the number of raps corresponded with the position of the appropriate letter in the alphabet so that communications could be spelt out. Eventually, this gave way to the much less cumbersome and now much parodied once for yes, twice for no system. <laughs> mm -hmm. This form of spirit communication became very popular and still continues to a lesser extent today, despite the Fox sisters' admission that they obtained their results fraudulently by cracking their toe joints. Well, one of the sisters later, because it ruined their career, of course, I think she came back and said, well, it wasn't totally faked. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, but here's the, <laughs> the deal with that. It's like, that could also be true, you know? I mean, right. yeah, you have to doubt it and you have to consider the source. With the wrapping that's happening in the case of the Philip experiment, mm -hmm. is someone cracking their joints? Like, I don't know. And we uh, mentioned it earlier in yeah. part one and part two. It's like when the table's upside down mm -hmm. and they bring the mic down and you hear the wrapping... It sounds like a real sound. Is is somebody just like twisting their ankle or something? I don't know, which, by the way, is a little bit disgusting in a weird way. Like, are they cracking a knuckle and then the boom mic's picking yeah. it up? Or is it something different? Are we all being tricked? Or is this real? Does it matter? Why are we trying so hard to figure it out? Because it's outside of us and it's invisible right. and mysterious and unexplained. And like I said, some parts of that could be explained. Well, it depends who you believe. You know, there's a there's a certainly a lot of uh, parapsychologists, metaphysical thinkers, and people who are kind of adventurers. One we're going to talk about here when it comes to tulpas, who have some explanations or at least anecdotes that are pretty wild. So again, if you don't believe that there's anything outside of us, that uh, nothing mysterious happens, then it is, it's gotta be somebody cracking their toes. But the participants, you could also say, maybe they're misleading themselves. They're convincing themselves that this is happening or wanted to so much that it's, it actually is happening in a, in a way. Now, like I said, that jump, trying to convince yourself that it's something is happening so much that you believe it is one thing. But when others see it happening, then you're creating a real effect that is outside of yourself. That's pretty extraordinary. We're going to talk about the difference between a tulpa and an egregore. And this is more so the egregore. Well, when looking for a definition, very quickly, uh, sometimes you can go to Quora, <laughs> Q-U-O-R-A, and somebody much more cleverer than us has already answered it. This description comes from a poster called Nick's Shadowhawk, N-Y-X and then Shadowhawk, uh, who describes themselves as an occultist of some variety, author, aspiring novelist. And somebody uh, asked them, uh, what's the difference between a tulpa 
egregor and servitor. That's a new term we should throw in there as well. What they say, Nix, is a tulpa is an entity created by a person, a thought form with a degree of will and autonomy. It's basically a sentient imaginary friend. The word is Tibetan. The word egregor comes from the Greek and has referred to a number of things, but modern occultists mostly use it to refer to a tulpa created by a group of people instead of one person. A servitor is a tulpa created to serve the magician, and I don't mean the, the stage magician. I think he's talking about the magic with a K magician, usually by accomplishing a specific task. It's like an astral robot. Well, wouldn't that be handy? That's what some people do uh, if you go on to believe this because he describes a, a related question. What are the differences between a tulpa and a real person? Or can you even tell the differences at all? Well, that's a good question because somebody shows up, they seem a little uh, flaky, wispy, misty, vaporous. Maybe it's not a real person. And Nix apparently has one of these. He says, well, my tulpa doesn't have a body, first of all. No one else can see him, hear him, or interact with him directly in parentheses, unless they're very spiritually attuned, period. For all intents and purposes, he's an imaginary friend. So yes, I can tell the difference between him and a real flesh and blood human being. He certainly feels very real to me in the sense that he seems sentient. I can easily see him in my mind. I can hear his voice in my head and feel his presence. But he has no physical presence or substance at all. I also can control him in a way that I wouldn't be able to control a person and invoke him, and he remains attached to me in a way that a completely independent soul would not be. Interesting. So uh, I've not uh, really asked anybody if they had one of these <laughs> just uh, in their mind or in existence or had created one, but uh, according to Nix, uh, it's possible and people do. And I'll just put this out here and, and shove this to the side. Bronies. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not touching that. But I will say that I, I remember discussing on a prior episode the fact that I stumbled across a message board that was nothing but people talking about their tulpas that they yeah. had created and what they were doing and what they were up to and they'd lost control of them. That's and scary. Things like that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I don't know what that is, but what I do love is the idea. It's like okay, tulpa related to an individual. Egregore related to a group. Yeah. And more so. Force, maybe you can tell me about this because you're more of a coast to coast connoisseur than I am. <laughs> mm. What happened when Art Bell tried to get everybody to make it rain? Did that work or not? I don't know. But yeah. I love those attempts. There was one, you know, when I was, uh, the, you and I are much younger, where Kreskin yeah. tried to do a nationwide kind of thing or a worldwide kind of thing. And I think it kind of worked. I'd have to, again, right. <laughs> just going off the top of my head because I, did not expect the question, but what's yeah, interesting sorry, about this, uh, no, but no, because yeah. here's the thing. What I love about Kreskin's approach is that uh, an offshoot of magic, stage magic, folks, which uh, we refer to as like, well, a lot of this is just stage magic. Mentalism is an aspect of stage magic that I love because there's nothing really woo about it. It's just tricks right. that happen. It's like things you can get to happen or results that are amazing and will wow the person, but you just don't know exactly how it works. We just know that right. they do. And so that's what I love about Kreskin's approach is that it wasn't like I'm waving a magic wand. I'm just doing these things which uh, are pretty way out there and we don't really know how they work, but they seem to get an effect that's very entertaining. And the thing is, Kreskin, all of his stuff was based on ESP, which was all developed by J.B. Ryan from Duke University right up the street from me here. Yeah. And it's fascinating because like all this stuff ties back together 
I can't figure out where the independence is and where what's within and what's without, right? And so when we talk about tulpas and egregores and where we're at with this stuff, I did want to touch on this section from uh, Alexander David Neal's book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet. We read a brief excerpt from this in part one, Mm -hmm. but there's a larger section here that I wanted to read in, in part two. Just a little bit of background on her. Alexander David Neal, and this is from Wikipedia, just a brief overview before we read this section from the book. She was a Belgian-French explorer, spiritualist, Buddhist, anarchist, opera singer, and writer. Mm -hmm. Again, we mentioned this before. Mm -hmm. Most known for her 1924 visit to Lhasa, Tibet, when it was forbidden to foreigners. David Neal wrote over 30 books about Eastern religion, philosophy, and her travels, including Magic and Mystery in Tibet, which is what we're about to share a section from uh, with you. Uh, That was published in 1929. Her teachings influenced the beat writers Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, the popularizers of Eastern philosophy Alan Watts and Ram Dass, and the esotericist Benjamin Cream. So uh, here's some sections from uh, Magic and Mystery in Tibet mm-hmm. that are really fascinating. And this is talking about the powers of ancient Tibetan Buddhists and what they could do when it came to thought forms and tulpas. So this is from page 318 of Magic and Mystery in Tibet. Incited by many wonderful legends regarding the power of ancient tubthobs to create tulpas, a small number of gospas and lamas endeavor in great secrecy to succeed in that peculiar branch of esoteric lore. However, the practice is considered as fraught with danger for everyone who has not reached a high mental and spiritual degree of enlightenment and is not fully aware of the nature of the psychic forces at work in the process. Once the tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the part of a real being, it tends to free itself from its maker's control. This, say Tibetan occultists, happens nearly mechanically, just as the child, when his body is completed and able to live apart, leaves its mother's womb. Sometimes the phantom becomes a rebellious son, and one hears of uncanny struggles that have taken place between magicians and their creatures the former being severely hurt or even killed by the latter. Tibetan magicians also relate cases in which the tulpa is sent to fulfill a mission, but does not come back and pursues its peregrinations as a half-conscious, dangerously mischievous puppet. The same thing, it is said, may happen when the maker of the tulpa dies before having dissolved it. Yet as a rule, the phantom either disappears suddenly at the death of the magician or gradually vanishes like a body that perishes for want of food. On the other hand, some tulpas are expressly intended to survive their creator and are specially formed for that purpose. These may be considered as veritable tulkus, and in fact, the demarcation between tulpas and tulkus is far from being clearly drawn. The existence of both is grounded on the same theories. Must we credit these strange accounts of rebellious materializations, phantoms which have become real beings, or must we reject them all as mere fantastic tales and wild products of imagination? Perhaps the latter course is the wisest. I affirm nothing. I only relate what I have heard from people whom, in other circumstances, I had found trustworthy, but they may have deluded themselves in all sincerity. Nevertheless, Allowing for a great deal of exaggeration and sensational addition, I could hardly deny the possibility of visualizing and animating a tulpa. Besides having had few opportunities of seeing thought forms, my habitual incredulity led me to make experiments for myself, and my efforts were attended with some success. In order to avoid being influenced by the forms of the Lamaist deities, 
which I saw daily around me in paintings and images, I chose for my experiment a most insignificant character, a monk, short and fat, of an innocent and jolly type. I shut myself in Sam's and proceeded to perform the prescribed concentration of thought and other rites. After a few months, the phantom monk was formed. His form grew gradually fixed and lifelike looking. He became a kind of guest living in my apartment. I then broke my seclusion and started for a tour with my servants and tents. The monk included himself in the party, though I lived in the open riding on horseback for miles each day. The illusion persisted. I saw the fat trappa now and then. It was not necessary for me to think of him to make him appear. The phantom performed various actions of the kind that are natural to travelers and that I had not commanded. For instance, he walked, stopped, looked around him. The illusion was mostly visual, but sometimes I felt as if a robe was lightly rubbing against me and once a hand seemed to touch my shoulder. The features which I had imagined when building my phantom gradually underwent a change. The fat, chubby-cheeked fellow grew leaner. His face assumed a vaguely mocking, sly, malignant look. Mm. He became more troublesome and bold. In brief, he escaped my control. Once a herdsman who brought me a present of butter saw the tulpa in my tent and took it for a live llama. I ought to have let the phenomenon follow its course, but the presence of that unwanted companion began to prove trying to my nerves. It turned into a day nightmare. Moreover, I was beginning to plan my journey to Lhasa, and I needed a quiet brain devoid of other preoccupations. So I decided to dissolve. I was beginning to plan my journey to Lhasa and needed a quiet brain devoid of other preoccupations. So I decided to dissolve the phantom. I succeeded, but only after six months of hard struggle. My mind creature was tenacious of life. There is nothing strange in the fact that I may have created my own hallucination. The interesting point is that in these cases of materialization, others see the thought forms that have been created. So I think this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to read this last couple of observations about her, this section here that she wrote. Tibetans disagree in their explanations of such phenomena. Some think a material form is really brought into being. Others consider the apparition as a mere case of suggestion. The creator's thought impressing others and causing them to see what he himself sees. In spite of the clever efforts made by the Tibetans to find rational explanations for all prodigies, a number remain unexplained, perhaps because they are pure inventions or perhaps for other reasons. A Tibetan generally admits that highly advanced mystics need not die in the usual way, but may dissolve their bodies when and where they like and leave no traces. Obi-Wan Kenobi, anybody? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's awesome. This is, and I, I love this section. And, and her writing is so amazing. This book is amazing. I highly recommend that anybody pick it up. Check her out, Alexandra David Neal. But this information is so fascinating. And the fact that she went, she took this trip and she, uh, among many trips, and wrote so many books about this experience. And what we look at here when we, when we reflect on this is like the Tibetans were creating these thought forms all along. So is that just what we're continuing? Is there a bigger mm -hmm. picture here of an experience that like we're framing it in all different kinds of religions from different time periods, but, but there's a common ground in what's happening. And that's what I wonder when it comes to the Philip experiment. Well, that description there makes me wonder when, 
psychic mediums and ghost hunters and researchers of the paranormal and the metaphysical talk about elementals, which are not fully formed beings, or there's a strata of different types of beings. So they say, well, it's, it's somewhat conscious. It's not as smart as a demon. <laughs> they kind of those kinds of uh, qualifiers and descriptors. It's some half-formed thing that was created, got away, and now it's doing its own thing, and it's kind of mischievous, and it's a prankster, and it does this and that, but it's not fully got an agenda of its own other than to just be there and be annoying. And it can draw a lot of mental energy from a person. It can be destructive, but again, it's not out to uh, burn the cities of the earth. It's just going to do its kind of thing, and it was kind of let go for whatever reason, and you wonder if there's any connection to that. Or, as, again, the Tibetans can't agree among themselves what this thing is or what this phenomena is. Right. Is it just some kind of self-hypnotic suggestion that as manifested as a visual thing that people can see? And you wonder about that. You know, you wonder about the uh, all of these things. Like I said, the... Scott and I were just talking a couple of hours ago about the idea of the crisis apparition of people who had not passed yet. That's not a spirit. Yeah. That is not a... They're still alive. Right, yeah. they're still alive, but somehow their At image... At that moment, anyway. ...showed yeah. up to somebody who was a loved one or somebody deeply connected to them. And I know people that that's happened to. And the person didn't pass away for another two weeks, but they were terminally ill... And somehow they showed up in two different places at the same time to loved ones. Right. And again, that's not their spirit, but each person said it was like they were just sitting there and it freaked them out. Because like, Dad, what are you doing here? You should be at the hospital. But there was Dad until he faded away. I mean, and that begs the question, are we projecting our own relatives? Are we like, we? you get into this whole idea of what is reality, mm-hmm. and we're getting into our conclusions here a little bit, but like, are we projecting our friends and relatives? And are we getting to a point where if the projection's going to end, maybe we're saying, no, I, I need to bring this in front of me for a moment before I lose it forever. Right. Well, you do, as they say, as long as you're thinking about somebody, they stay alive in some form. And when you stop thinking, well, the Egyptians believe that, is that you die two deaths. One is when you physically die. The other one was when people stop speaking your name. Right. Which is at conflict with uh, what ancient Egyptian mothers would do is give you a name that was not your true name so that the evil spirits would not know your real name and therefore could not hurt you. So we always talk about the power of a name. Yeah. Interesting custom. Fred. And, that's not your real name. Only, that's a uh, callback. No one's going to get. I don't care how long <laughs> you've been listening way, to the show. If you can right. get that, I'll be impressed. Yeah. Way, way back when. But here's <laughs> uh, the difference between the egregore. That's what we're getting back to here. Not so much the tulpa, but the group manifestation here. Yeah. Uh, and again, the explanation being it's a manifestation of the collective thought forms, emotion, beliefs, and actions of that group, which conjures it and has its own distinct energy or spirit. The tulpa, on the other hand, is that imaginary friend thing, which can become real and visualized and fed with enough energy and attention. So that's a very personal one that right. gets away with uh, from you. But they did not succeed in conjuring uh, the Philip group with conjuring an image of Philip, which they had all agreed upon and described to detail. That says something about the veracity of the group and their experiment. I'll keep this short because yeah. I don't want to totally derail you. Uh. But they're saying, yeah, the table moved. Yeah, we heard rapping. No, we didn't get to an apparition. That was their original goal, an apparition. Right. 
they could just as easily say, we all saw an apparition as they could say, we heard knocking on the table and the Mm -hmm. table was tilting, but they never saw the apparition. So the fact that they never even got to the original goal, for me, that contributes to the veracity of what they're saying that they did personally experience as happening, whether or not it was a conscious intent or a subconscious intent with the tilting and the, and the wrapping the fact is they were like, you know what? We we never got to this. This was the thing we wanted. We never got there. Right. And for me, that's like these folks, as far as I'm concerned, they believed in what they were doing and they believed in the results they got. It's all about belief. That's kind of the, you know, as we're, we're sifting this down in the crucible of uh, our blatherings, what you find here is that there's some elements that are at the underpinnings. We don't really know what the process is, right? The mechanics of this of sorts, what's really going on or where it's uh, sourcing, I don't believe, but what we know is that there has to be some elements with the people involved that are, let's say those knobs, those dials have to be on. Those have to be turned on before this thing kind of works. And that is belief and intention and visualization. People think, well, this is a bunch of hooey, right? Well, guess what? Your top athletes in the world still use visualization to achieve the greatest feats in sports and athletics ever. Because it works, I would have to assume. I'm not an athlete or any of those, but I do try some visualization things. And I say, you know, with limited success, some things have seemed to have been aided by it. And it's what I was saying before, maybe more so in the uh, in the junk drawer, that with the book that was touted by Oprah, The Secret, the overriding concept has been derailed a little bit by our own wishful thinking in that uh, you wish for uh, a mansion and a Lamborghini, and poof, it shows up. Well, it doesn't really work like that, does it? However, one of the doctors in it, and I really should look this up because I mention it every now and then, was saying like, that's not exactly why I was trying to say. What he was trying to say was that the universe, as you want to call it, your higher power, whatever it is, it's more reflective. Whatever you put out in the universe comes back to you. You put out good things, good intentions, good thoughts, you manifest that, you're more likely to have these good things come back to you. You start putting out negative things, dark things. You're the Eeyore of uh, your own worst (laughs) intentions. That's what you get back. And it's just kind of a mirror and it's reflexive. And talking about athletes, though, I came across this New York Times article. This is back for 2014, mostly about the Sochi Olympics. Uh, It's been going on, this article says, visualization. It's long been a part of elite sports. Al Order, a four-time Olympic discus champion, and the tennis star Billie Jean King were among those using it in the 1960s. But here's something interesting about that technique, as mentioned by Nicole Detling, a sports psychologist with the United States Olympic team, is that now they want you to go beyond just visualization, is that you have to visualize, or it works better if you imagine the entire package, as the quote goes. The more you can imagine this entire package, the better it's going to be. And what they're talking about, which here is is a fascinating idea, is that to imagine the whole thing, you also imagine yourself at the press conference after winning a gold medal. You imagine the adoring fans as you, you're on the bus waving at you. you. You imagine as if it is going to be. It's already happened. Fait accompli. Do not have any doubts. And of course, there's no guarantee you're going to be uh, at the number one spot on the podium, but... These top athletes use this technique, and they're, uh, even if it's 10, 20% more effective, aren't you going to take that chance that maybe this will give you the edge over your competitors? So you do imagine yourself taking those uh, turns down the giant slalom in the perfect order. 
you do imagine taking those turns as a race car driver. In that movie, which I really liked, I'm sure you did too, uh, Rush, about uh, the race car drivers and their rivalry here, you can see James Hunt, played by Chris Hemsworth, doing the visualization and he's in, you know, he's in that mansion that they uh, rented, I think before right. uh, to train or whatever. And he's, he's shifting the gears and his eyes are closed. He's, he's some, I think somebody says, uh, well, what are you doing? It looks kind of goofy. And he says, I'm going through every turn. And he's yeah. just imagining the, uh, the tachometer and the shift points he needs to do, how the track is going to be. It's all laid out because when you get to actually do it, as a lot of brain scientists are figuring out your imagination, what you picture and the actual thing, at least your, with your memories, uh, they say this about PTSD, it's very close to experiencing the real thing. It's the same thing with Rupert Pupkin in The King of Comedy in 1982, mm -hmm. when he visualized himself as hosting The Tonight Show. Right. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, that didn't work out the same way. But uh, yeah, if oh. anybody wants to see, if anyone wants to see a movie about no, visualization. It, it, yeah, it didn't exactly work out the same way, but he did achieve uh, some... But you know uh, what, he did it, goals. he got there. He got to The Tonight Show. Yeah. Great movie, Scorsese film, for those that haven't Look, seen Look, all, all I'm saying with this technique, which is employed by, yeah. uh, it's obviously not thought of as too woo-woo by the top athletes in the world, that uh, yeah. not only do you imagine sinking the three-pointers, and they do this a lot with free throws, just because it's such a repetitive motion, right? You're, you're, you you got a second yeah. to think about it, you're, you're doing the same motion, you just picture it going in. But you imagine the press conference afterwards, after your victory, and uh, how you accomplished all these feats. You imagine the whole package and it works better. Yeah, I know what? I believe that. I believe you can manifest things. I feel like I've manifest things in my personal life. Mm -hmm. I won't get into all of them here. It, one of them was a podcast that would last more than five <laughs> years, and that's where we're at. So, I guess so. I mean, I, th I think you can do that. If you believe in it and you believe in yourself, you can get to those places. And and it's weird to take the Philip experiment and turn it into a, like a believe in yourself message, but I, I do think that's a little bit of what's going on here. Yeah. But like in the bigger philosophy of this, and it, I don't know, can I segue to my conclusions? Or yeah, do you I think have we're there. Another no. point you want uh, to say. I think we're there. The other thing I was going to say, and like I said, uh, the part of the phenomenon with the Philip people, and I'm not sure if we mentioned this yet, is that yeah. it was also very localized for the participants. And if you believe them, when they ask a question and they get a rap, they felt it as a vibration happening under their hand a lot of the time. Yeah. And also they felt, I mentioned uh, that. Part, yeah, yeah, part of the presence also was that the anticipation of a vibration happening. Right. It was palpable. They felt it before it actually happened. Now, is that just them manifesting this knock or rap or scratch because they're expecting at this point to happen? But what about the first scratch? For a year they went and nothing happened. But maybe their the minds were changed after they, again, got the information from the articles about trying the techniques of the old-fashioned seances, and maybe that changed their expectation enough to make this allowable to happen. Well, in the end, the Philip experiment really comes down to who is Philip, what is Philip, and when we decide what Philip is, does that redefine every paranormal experience we have that are related to ghosts and poltergeists? and uh, psychokinesis, telekinesis, mm -hmm. apportation, uh, things we've talked about on the show before. Is all of this stuff existing within or without? That's me. I'm deferring to F. Scott Fitzgerald, one of my favorite authors who, uh, who uses the within and without thing a bunch. Mm. <laughs> like, but seriously, it's what is happening here? Is this a result of something we're projecting or is it an external thing that's reacting to us? Mm -hmm. And 
I can't figure this out because for, you know, and Forrest, you and I talked about this earlier when we we're trying to figure out uh, what's the through line here? What What is the connection? When you look at all of the shows we've done, and, and one of the things that I mentioned earlier uh, metaphorically was like, we've opened a bunch of doors in a long hallway of paranormal stories. And we've looked in all these doors and at first everything seems so different and so different. And then after you've covered a ton of topics. And and this is something that's consistent with lots of uh, paranormal researchers and authors and folks that we've met over the years. You start to see all this common ground. And then the more you look, the more common ground you start to see. And you start to see these through lines. And it, it, it's something that we used to say a lot. And we haven't said it as much lately, but the whole idea that everything is connected and that there are these threads. Because for me, we've covered topics that have redefined how I thought about the paranormal. Of course, there's a Sally House. Take a drink. There's <laughs> there's other ones. There's the sludge entity, mm. the siren call of the hungry ghost. That really changed things for me. And then in addition to that, the vertical plane. Yeah. Those last two being books that Richard Haddam brought to our attention. And I am so glad. And I <laughs> one of the mm. one of the great crowning achievements for us as far as I'm concerned is that when we covered the vertical plane the author, Ken Webster, went and uh, published a new version of it and put us in the new version, yeah, gave us a shout out, cool. uh, which we have to give a shout out back to Rich Adam for that. Yes. So now we're in print on that. That just feels amazing. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm excited that we got to be a part of that. But my point is, what's happening here? Yeah. What is the big picture? And all these ideas come back around to like the trickster and the paranormal, which I can't believe we haven't read or covered yet. But we, but we have mentioned uh, the messengers, which I think mm. we misattributed uh, the author on that. I certainly did. Back. I miss, <laughs> I said, yeah. I was thinking of the title, the messengers, owls, synchronicity, and the UFO abductee. And yes. that is written by Mike Cleland, who we Mike briefly Cleland, crossed yes. paths with a little bit online and a uh, terrific author. And I attributed that book erroneously to Joshua Cutchin, who wrote A Trojan yes. Feast, the byline being the food and drink offerings of aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch. Fascinating Yes. Book. Rich Haddam also- great uh, angles uh, yeah, on he introduced, stories. He yeah, he introduced us to that. Uh, one of the later ones, uh, The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural sense, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas. I also like the word miasma. But there's other sensory phenomenon attached with this. Yeah, and this is what's so great about these authors, Mike Clellan and Joshua Cutchin. It's the, these other angles. Folks are just looking, swanning, oh, where's the, what's the blurry photo? Let's talk about the blurry photo. That's not a UFO. It's an island in the water and a reflection. Yeah, it's like, no, there's so much more going on here. It's like with Bigfoot, do you smell something? You know, mm, listen, mm -hmm. smell something? Not to go back to Ghostbusters, but they're, all of that stuff is connected. And you have to look at all the senses that you're taking in. And what's happening here? Are we projecting? Are we receiving? Is it both? Is the universe more interactive than we think it is? Are we controlling it? Is it controlling us? Or is there a symbiosis happening there? And if so, how can we take it to the next level? That's going to wrap up our series on Conjuring Philip. We're dark for the next two weeks, but we will return on the weekend of April 15th with a new show. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Door, which most of the time we do live on video for our patrons at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. For our most recent one, we were joined by Rich Haddam to review the film footage from the Philip Experiment. It's still available on our Patreon page. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel. 
who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. I'm Sean Himsel. Hi, I'm Larry Froin. Compensation may be taken without consent. <laughs> our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com astonishinglegends where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.